0: Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. We're in the midst of a time of feasting and celebrating for 12 days the birth of our Lord, and I'm continuing with this series, Songs of Messiah. And so on this third day of Christmas, we want to look at Simeon's song, Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Jesus, as we know, was born in Bethlehem. Five miles north, Bethlehem's a little village. Five miles north of Bethlehem is the big city, the capital city, the city of the great king, the city of the temple, Jerusalem. And in the city of Jerusalem, there lived an old man by the name of Simeon. Simeon was devout and righteous. He lived his faith. He wasn't nominal in his faith. It was at the very core of his being. And we're told that Simeon, this old man in Jerusalem, righteous and devout, was looking for something, was looking forward to something, was waiting for something to happen. And we're told that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the consolation of Jerusalem, the, the comforting, the one that would come and make everything all right. Jerusalem, at this point, had been under Roman occupation for over 50 years, and Simeon was waiting for the one that would comfort ye, comfort ye my people. The consolation of Jerusalem. He's looking for that. He's waiting for it. And he's been waiting for half a century. Yeah, 2020. The one star right there is, is uh, when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. That's the one star. I know it's not in the, in, the, in the great scope of things, you know, your sports team winning the championship isn't that big a deal. But what it did for me was it gave me a real palpable sense of what it is like to wait for something for 50 years. I was 10 years old when the Chiefs won Super Bowl Four, And I was over the moon. You know, as a 10-year-old boy who's into sports, can be, you know what I'm talking about, Tyrese. And, uh, and I just knew, come on now, I just knew that they would win next year. But they didn't. That's all right, they'll win the next year. But they didn't. And every year for 50 years, I would begin the season saying, this is the year. You can ask Perry, I have done that. And then finally, at age 60, It came to pass. And what that did for me was give me a real sense of what does it feel like to wait for something for half a century? I know what it feels like. It feels like a long time is what it feels like. Well, this is Simeon, but what he's waiting for is not something as insignificant as his team winning the big thing, but he's waiting for the consolation of Jerusalem. He's waiting, in fact, for Messiah. He hasn't given up, though. Why? Because it's been revealed to him by the Spirit that he will not see death before he sees the Lord's Messiah. Now, he's an old man. You know, death cannot be held off forever. He's going to see death, and maybe sooner than later. But it's been revealed to him. He can't prove it. It's It's not empirically provable. But by the Spirit, it has been revealed to him, not to his mind, but to his heart, He knows by revelation of the Spirit given unto his heart that before he sees death, he will see the Lord's Messiah. I mean, this is the same phenomenon by which Peter comes to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's revealed to him. And the Spirit has revealed to this old man, Simeon, that before he sees death, he'll see the Messiah. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Simeon knows nothing of this, of course. This is obscure. But 40 days after Jesus was born, February 2nd on the church calendar, according to the Torah, Mary and Joseph needed to bring Jesus to the temple to be presented unto the Lord. Because this was was a requirement for firstborn males. That they would be brought to the temple and presented, in in a special way, dedicated unto the Lord. Part of the ritual involved the offering of a sacrificial lamb. But in the Torah, there was a provision for those who were poor. If they could not afford a lamb, they could substitute two pigeons. And this is what Mary and Joseph do. They travel the five miles, 40 days after the birth of Jesus. He's not yet six weeks old. And they bring him to the temple. And they offer not the lamb, but the two pigeons as the provision for the poor. So Jesus lived among the poor. In a world arranged for the privilege of the rich, the Son of God lived among the poor. Well, on this day, 40 days after Christmas, the Spirit says to Simeon, Old man, get up to the temple, get there now. And so Simeon hurries from his home in Jerusalem to the temple. He's wondering what's going on. And a young couple catches his eye. And the Spirit says, See that little baby? See that little baby? They're here to dedicate that baby, to present that baby to the Lord. That one, that one right there, that's the Messiah. So Simeon goes over to them. And he says to Mary, may I? And he takes Jesus in his arms. Not only sees him, but he holds him. He sees his salvation. He not only sees his salvation, he holds salvation in his arms. He's waited for 50 years. It's been promised to him he wouldn't see death before he sees the Lord's salvation. But now he not only sees, he cradles, he holds, he embraces in his arms a not yet six-week-old infant that is his salvation. He doesn't understand how. But it's been revealed to him. And as he holds Jesus, Simeon breaks into song. He says, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. This is Simeon's song. We might say that this is Simeon's swan song. That this is his last performance. He says, Master, now you're dismissing your servant in peace. He's acknowledging his own death, which will come soon. That he's Completed his service, and he's being dismissed now. But, Master, you're dismissing your servant in peace. In other words, he's saying, Ah, the time of my death is near, and I'm at peace. I'm not anxious. I'm not troubled. I'm not disappointed. I'm at peace. We're left with the distinct impression, of course, that Simeon will indeed die soon. But he's at peace because he's seen salvation. He's held salvation in his own arms. He wants to see salvation. And he's waited and waited and waited decade after decade after decade. And now he sees and holds salvation. Very poignant, very beautiful. That's Simeon's story with his song. Now we need to meet someone else because someone else shows up of significance at this exact moment. Verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna was what the later Christian tradition would call an anchoress like Julian of Norwich in the 14th century in England, she was, they would have these, it was usually women, would take up residence in a church and through their piety and their devotion, their life of prayer, they would gain a reputation. They had a little kind of little cell they would stay in and people would come and seek their counsel and their direction and their prayers and they would pray for people to be healed they would pray for people to be given you know, spiritual direction and all of that sort of thing well, you know, that's the Christian tradition known as an anchoress it seems that Anna was something like that that um, she had attached herself to the temple and that she was there. She's always there it's as she lived there. Maybe she had a little, a little place to stay. She's there day and night. She's praying, she's fasting, and she, she becomes prophetic. She's known as a prophet. And people want to hear her word and they respect her holiness. Now we can make some guesses about Anna's life from, very, from some very subtle hints that Luke drops in. I think, I think these hints are not my imagination at work. I think Luke has placed them there for those who have enough understanding of the time in which this story takes place to discern these. First of all, we know she's 84 years old and that she was widowed after seven years of marriage. So She's married as a young woman. She lives with her husband seven years. That's not very long. And then suddenly we presume unexpectedly, she becomes a widow. And maybe that's the time that she begins to now live in the temple and devotes She doesn't marry again. She devotes her life to the Lord and becomes this, to use an anachronistic term, this anchoress in the temple, indeed a prophet. Now, Anna would have become a widow around the same time that the Roman general Pompey occupied Jerusalem. That's a bust of poppy. I mean, that's from the time period. That is presumably realistic. Who was he? Well, he was was a Roman senator, but Roman senators were also generals. He became eventually the wealthiest man in in Rome. So you can also just know that he was corrupt. I mean, he was. You can read the history if you want. Uh, And he led the campaign of Rome invading Judah and led the three-month siege of Jerusalem. Now, don't confuse this with what happens way later in A.D. 70. This is 133 years before that. And the Jewish people are trying to resist. And eventually, 12,000 men take their final stand on the Temple Mount. And after a three-month siege, General Pompey, And the Roman legions break in. They go up on the Temple Mount. They realize it's hopeless. The Jewish men surrender. And 12,000 are slaughtered. Then Pompey entered the Holy of Holies. You understand? You You have the Holy Temple and then you have the... The, the holy place, and then you have the holiest of all, the holy of holies, that only the high priest wants. He, and this corrupt Roman sinner, this general, just strides into the holy of holies, the ultimate blasphemy and desecration. And that marks the beginning of the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. Was Anna's husband among the 12,000 Jewish men slain on the Temple Mount, slaughtered by Pompey and his men. Pompey and his men. Um, Is that how she became a widow? I think Luke hints at it. I think he wants us to imagine that this was a young woman who lost her husband because of this wicked man, Senator General Pompey and and just the lust of the Roman Empire to own and control everything. And in her grief and in her sorrow, she seeks God and she lives in the temple and becomes a prophet. Well, Anna was indeed a prophet. And she happened to be there at the same time that the Spirit is revealing the Simeon. And Simeon's holding the baby. And she walks up and she sees the baby. And she begins to hey, hey. She begins to alert everybody. She's an 84-year-old woman. She alerts everyone. Come here, come here. you got to see this baby. You who have been hoping for the redemption of Israel. This is it. This little baby is the redemption of Jerusalem. You that have been hoping and waiting, look upon this baby. Simeon and Anna. An old man and an old woman in the temple. Both are prophetic. These two old prophets speak of the infant Jesus as salvation and redemption. That's the language they use salvation and redemption. Indeed, Jesus will save. Jesus will be the Savior of both Simeon and Anna. They have seen salvation, they have spoken of this baby as redemption. Simeon has held salvation in his arms. Both Simeon and Anna can and do say that this child, this little baby, will grow up and save and redeem. Yet neither one of them really knows how Jesus will do this. And in fact, they really have basically no idea what salvation really is. And yet, all they say is accurate. Look, Salvation is not based upon theological acumen. Salvation is not based upon getting a good grade in a theological class. Salvation is based entirely upon trust. Or we could say it this way, salvation is not based in believing the right things, salvation is based in trusting the right person. And both Simeon and Anna have confessed, this is the one who saves, this is the one who redeems. They know not how. And any assumption they would make would be wrong. We can probably guess that Simeon and Anna assumed that salvation was mostly of a political nature. I mean, since the days of General Pompey, Jerusalem had been under Roman domination And they probably assumed that this child would eventually grow up and become a liberator, a deliverer, a messiah like Judah Maccabee. This is from 160 years earlier. Judah Maccabeus. Judah Judah the hammer. Judah the hammer was a messianic figure who led a somewhat, for a time anyway, somewhat successful revolt against the Seleucid Empire that was dominating Israel at the time. And this establishes the Hasmonean dynasty. I'm getting a little too history today. I'll get to preaching here in a moment. And they probably thought, well, you know, instead of Judah the hammer, this little baby... What's his name? Oh, Yahshua, that's a very good name. Yes, he'll probably be Yahshua the hammer. We've already had Judah the hammer, gave us a little reprieve, gave us a little bit of liberation in his revolt against the Seleucid Empire in his day, the Maccabean revolt. Uh, this little baby Yahshua will probably come up and be, and be Yahshua the hammer. Or maybe we'll call him Yahshua the sword, Yahshua the great, Yahshua the conqueror. Of course, we know that that's not what happened. That this little baby Yahshua grows up and is called the Prince of Peace. Salvation does not come, then or now, through an army or a violent revolution. Salvation comes from the Prince of Peace. So were Simeon and Anna wrong in their idea that this little baby would lead a revolution oh no they were not wrong they were in fact more right than they could even imagine Jesus does bring a revolution it's just not violent in fact ultimately violence isn't very revolutionary it's kinda old hat it's kinda the same old same old it's kinda the way it's always been this little baby going to grow up and actually do something revolutionary. It's going to do something brand new. This little baby going to bring the revolution of the kingdom of God. not The kingdom of man, but the kingdom of God. And by the way, that is what salvation is. What is salvation? Salvation is the kingdom of God. Our experience of salvation is the experience of all that the kingdom of God is. The forgiveness of sins, the living of an alternative life, the following of Jesus, ultimately resurrection, and all of these things. What Paul tends to call salvation, because that's his big word, Jesus tends to call the kingdom of God. But they're not talking about two different things. They're talking about the same thing. So as Jesus grows up, He inaugurates the kingdom of God, that is salvation, in His teaching, in His life, in His death, and in His resurrection. And we, the church, the body of Christ, we are called to embody the revolutionary kingdom of Christ here and now. Yet when Simeon and Anna prophesied that the little baby Jesus would grow up and be salvation and redemption, they could have no idea. They could never have imagined that Jesus would bring salvation and redemption in the ultimate sense. That is salvation from the dominion of death. That's the great enemy. And they couldn't have imagined, I don't believe, that this little baby would Deliver them from the ultimate enemy, the enemy of death. Well, if we bring it back to uh, Luke chapter 2. These old prophets, Simeon and Anna. Soon they will die and they will descend into the realm of the dead. But they will not stay there they will not be lost there. They will be liberated. They will be rescued. They will be redeemed. They will be delivered. They will be saved from death. And who's going to do that? Of course, it's Jesus. The one that they had seen as an infant, the one whom Simeon had held. Simeon had held Jesus when Jesus was just newborn. But eventually, Jesus is going to take hold of Simeon and save him from death. Jesus says it this way, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's what we see in the Anastasis resurrection icon. I've been using this a lot in the year 2020. First at Easter, back in March, or was it April? I don't remember when Easter was, of this year. But I have grown to love this icon more and more. This is, this is the icon of the resurrection. Jesus triumphant over death. You see the chains and the locks of death below his feet. You see the gates of hell have fallen in the form of a cross. You see that he's lifting out of the tomb Adam and Eve. He just grabs them by the wrist. They don't have any say in the matter. He's just saving them and pulling them up out of death. Adam, Adam, that's, that's humankind. That's Eve. That's life. In other words, this is the icon of Christ saving humanity and human life from the grip of death and bringing them up. But you know what? Yeah, I know in the icon it's, it's Adam and Eve, but you know, you wouldn't know the difference if I told you it's Simeon and Anna. Might as well be, because they too belong to humankind. They too belong to human life. So look at it like that. This old guy over here, he says, I, I remember I held you. You was a little baby. And Annovers, yeah, I remember I prophesied over you. I said, hey, everybody looking for redemption. This is the one. And now look, you've come to us and taken hold of us. And Christ pulls Simeon and Anna out of their graves. Out of the dominion of debt. Hallelujah. That's more than a history lesson right there. That's now I'm moving towards preaching. 2020. What a year. Perry and I were in Israel when the deal really went down. When everything started locking down and it got crazy, we were in Israel. We were there to lead another one of our pilgrim tours, and we'd got there a week early. We were wondering if anybody would show up. About 70 of them did. We got about halfway through our Israel tour, and everything is shut down means our, our guides could not come guide. Our bus, our bus drivers couldn't take, around, take us around in the buses. It was over. You couldn't have groups of more than 10. And so we thought, well, we're halfway through our tour, and, and it's shut down. And there was a moment when Perry and I kind of felt like, well, what are we going to do? We were in Jerusalem. What are we going to do? And then we realized, wait a minute. We've been here like 20 times. We're as good as guides. Our hotel's like, you know, from here to there to the old city. We'll just lead them ourselves. And that's what we did. We would take out small groups, you know, and and we would lead. I remember the first day I, you know, I went out and took some people, came back, got some more. I walked 15 miles that first day. Just just leading. We didn't need the guides. I mean, we love our guides, but we didn't need them. (laughs) Because Perry and I know how to do it. And it was so different. Now, you know, if you're if you've ever been to Jerusalem and especially maybe even that time of year, March, as you get you're into moving towards Holy Week and all that, it's crowded. I mean, also Passover and it's very crowded, and you're in the old city and you're just jostling like this through those little We walked around the old city empty. Had it to ourselves. The shops were all closed, but the holy sites are open. One day, I went to the, early in the morning, I went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There wasn't anybody there. I went up to the Golgotha Chapel, which is always crowded, 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 crowded. I was the only person. There wasn't even a priest or a nun there. It was just me. And I was there for an entire half hour doing my whole prayer time. I'm just praying up there all by myself as if, it's, as if it's my own personal chapel. Finally, I heard somebody after, just as I was getting done about half an hour, I turned and it was, oh, it was Perry and Aaron and Sarah. <laughs> one day I took, because uh, we had several days, you know. So one day I took our group, a little group I had, I took them to uh, Dormition Abbey on Mount. Zion. It's about the highest place in the old city. It's uh, a Benedictine church built on the traditional site of the death of Mary, in, traditionally in, in the year A.D. 41. And uh, we don't usually take our groups there just because, you know, there's so many places. There's so much to do. You know, you can only do so much. But because we could only do Jerusalem now and we had the place to ourselves. Uh, we could visit other you know places that ordinarily we didn't. So I, I took the little group we had and we went to Dormition Abbey. We were literally the only people there. The place is open, there's nobody there. Besides. And so then I took them downstairs to the crypt, and I was looking at the mosaics on the wall, and I saw this one. And this is my picture. I took a picture of this. This is in the in Dormition Abbey on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, in the crypt, the Greek says the dormition of the the Theotokos, the falling asleep of the God-bearer, or Mary. And so you see down below, you you see the death of Mary depicted. But then you look up and what do you see? You see Christ holding Mary swaddled in grave clothes. It's a reversal of the Nativities you've always seen. Right? You you see, in the Nativity scenes, you see Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, and there ain't much difference between swaddling clothes and grave clothes, birth and death. Mary's in life holding Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, but now Mary's died, and what happens? It's reversed. And Mary isn't lost to death. He's in the arms of Jesus. Is that beautiful? That's the good news. That's what what takes away the fear of death. It's appointed that we all die once. Death will come sooner or later. But at death, we're not dropped into some dark abyss. We're held in the arms of Jesus. When you die, you're not going to be lost in Hades, Sheol, an abyss, what's going to happen is you are going to be held in the arms of Jesus. Put that icon up, that, that mosaic up one more time. Here we go. Uh, that's a depiction of the death of Mary. It's a depiction of your own death. You know? This, this, this. Mortal tent that we have eventually cannot sustain life and it gives up the ghost. And that's when you arrive in the arms of Jesus. And you find that Jesus truly is the Savior and the Redeemer. And that's good news. Amen. Stand with me. Lord, you now have set your servant free to go in peace as you have promised. For these eyes of mine have seen the Savior, whom you have prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten the nations and the glory of your people Israel. Amen and amen. Join with me in confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Join with me now in our prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all those who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your sins are forgiven. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Emmanuel, God with us. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.